podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, as lockdown continues, uh, we continue with our themed whistleblowers. So I hope you enjoy this one. Moving on to football documentaries. Uh, we cover, in chronological order, um, just three main ones this week. So we start with um, Once in a Lifetime, which is a documentary about the New York Cosmos. So Gareth Dobson runs us through that. Uh, really interesting if you haven't seen it, as I haven't. So uh, that was class. Uh, the next one was uh, Johnny Owen's I Believe in Miracles, which is about the Forest team of the late 1780s, particularly Clough's managership of that and the European Cups, which uh, we have a good chat about. Um, and then John Bruin's pick, which is an impossible job, uh, is renamed Do I Not Like That, about Graham Taylor and the England team. So if you like any of them, hopefully you can find something you like in this. Uh, uh, enjoy the show. Welcome back, uh, everyone. Uh, this is another Quarantine Whistleblowers. We are back for continuity with John Bruin. John, nice to have you. Nice to be here again, Martin. Once again, that's nice and clear. Uh, Gareth Dobson. Hi, how are you doing? Great to have you both uh, on again. So let's let's look at why we're coming back this time. I think last week we touched on films, TV, mainly stuck on films, didn't we? Because we, I think we got stuck into the um, some crackers with um, obviously uh, Escape to Victory, a bit of Gregory's Girl, a bit of Damned United. Who else? Where else did we go? When Saturday comes. That's of course. How can I forget? Yeah. Sean Bean, my drinking partner. <laughs> That's right. What was the pub? Uh, the York, Broomhill, Sheffield. Yeah. Broomhill. Broomhill. It's still Sheffield. there. It's still there. Well, that's good to hear. Well, we'll see how, if it's still there when we come out of this. How are you both doing this uh, week, gents? Gareth, uh, um, how are things down in South London? South London is still very much standing. People are behaving generally you know even a sunny day in the park people were pretty good and it's very weird i'm only a stone's throw from a celeste park and usually at this point in the the season it's quite busy or you know every other weekend so i have actually missed that match day kind of traffic past my house it's a nice thing yeah that's weird i'm right next to the main road here and there's an eerie quiet sometimes it's still busy at rush hours but um it's strange how much that the background noise of London kind of affects your life day to day. Yeah. Let's not be too South-centric, uh, uh, not just London-centric. But, John, how's things up uh, your end? Um, yeah, well, uh, I- I'm going to surprise you here that I've enjoyed it raining here. Uh, A true Mac lad. Yeah, well, um, it's, it's sent everybody back indoors, which is... <laughs> uh, which uh, it was getting... Over the weekend, I was working, so I didn't actually go out, but... I could sense, you know, looking out the window or whatever, it was getting a bit crowded out there, which probably made me feel a bit uncomfortable, which shows the sort of mindset we're all in at the moment. But today I went for a nice walk, social distance walk uh, in the Victoria Park, and there was no one around until I got to the exit. So, uh, yeah, more rain, please. Yeah, well, I I don't think you're you're on your own there. It's been quite nice to have it, even from a... I hate fever perspective because I'm a massive sufferer of that, so it seems to have washed that away for a bit. Um, I'll bring it on to this week's pod. Basically, you know, in, in contrary to some of our previous ones where we've maybe just kind of been a bit more scattergunned about it, we're, we'll focus on ones that we that we want to 
basically speak about, but also perhaps personal ones that um, you guys have chosen yourselves. Uh, maybe Gareth, do you want to do you want to kick us off with what you've been looking at this week in the world? I should probably clarify in the world of football documentaries. Yes. Uh, so I went with a, a really fantastic documentary called Once in a Lifetime, uh, the story of the New York Cosmos, uh, which is as much about the rise and fall of the North American Soccer League in the from the mid seventies to the early eighties, and you know the golden period where you know Pele went and turned up and turned out for the the Cosmos along with people like Beckenbauer and um, Carlos Alberto. And then yeah, the league was full of other other, other colourful characters like Rodney Marsh, um, and it's it, it, it's a it's a really fantastic documentary. It's a real it's a real timepiece. Um, you know that that whole uh, New York mid late seventies vibe is obviously very much a thing. It's got a fantastic uh, soundtrack of uh, lots of disco and funk uh, and some and some others. And yeah, it's got some. Yeah, it's got amazing star power, and uh, I'm you know I have a, a slight vested interest in it because uh, all my uh, family are from that part of the woods, New York and, and New Jersey, and uh, you know as well as being someone who loves football, so the two, the Venn diagram of the two was it was very alluring, and uh, I don't know if either of you two have seen the documentary. Uh, y- yes, I've seen it, Gareth. Um, I mean, I saw it when it came out um and i actually watched a bit of it just this afternoon um and yeah i mean I, funny enough I, I couldn't actually remember too much about watching it first time round but um yes it, it, it's obviously well made um what amused me personally is that i have in in my well it's getting quite long now career come across a couple of these characters uh who who actually appear in the film uh, um I worked for ESPN for quite a long time, or a long time, in fact. And uh, on one of my trips over to the ESPN mothership, uh, there used to be a hotel uh, where the likes of me were put up uh, opposite the, the big uh, Bristol, Connecticut um, offices. And uh, one night in a hotel bar, I was with a good friend of mine, and uh, we ran into uh, another colleague of ours, and with him, was Shep Messing, the goalkeeper yes. of the New York Cosmos, uh, who, who appears in this documentary. Uh, and I was just watching him tell the story of how uh, he he was offered $2,100 for the season uh, and he turned it down and the manager said, well, I don't care, fine. So he actually ended up accepting it. Now, so we, we, we had a fairly raucous night with Shep Messing, as it happened. Uh, he got us in a round of drinks um and uh, my pal uh, said oh yeah what, what are you having he said he said oh i'm, I'm having a vodka and he said oh, i'll have one with you so a vodka and orange and uh, my mate uh, the next morning said he couldn't believe the measure of the vodka <laughs> that, that shep had uh, poured in it so anyway we, you know we, we were giggling away this is about 2004 and uh, so we looked up on the internet and uh, one of the first things uh, related to shep messing was that uh, during his career he uh, actually appeared as a nude model yes. in, in the female version of, uh, of Penthouse and also did a shoot for Playgirl as well. So wow. so being confronted with the meat and two veg of the bloke you were drinking with the night before, it's <laughs> uh, <is> my memory <laughs> of this. But he told us a couple of decent stories, uh, one of which was uh, a lot of his stories seem to centre around good nights out and... Uh, 
actually at the time he was he was quite good friends with Roberto Carlos. Um, but he was telling us uh, Franz Beckenbauer was a bit of a drinking partner of his, and uh, Franz Beckenbauer um, liked uh, liked a cigarette now and again. Uh, and they're in a bar, and Franz Beck and someone else had some cigarettes. Franz Beckenbauer said, "I really like a cigarette, but you know, I don't like to be seen to smoke in public." And at that point, Shep turned around and said, listen, Franz, no one actually knows who you are here. It was Franz, which Franz Beckenbauer admitted, yes, that's absolutely correct. It sparked up uh, with great pleasure. Lovely, <laughs> lovely. Uh, I haven't seen it, Gareth, and I, I, I feel like you two will put me to shame in terms of probably uh, the things that you have. Docs, maybe you've seen. It was weird when I was playing football. I was strangely not really put off we're watching much of it off the pitch, but I'll see that this is 2006. So as you said, John, were you at ESPN 2006? Yeah, I was. Yeah. And uh, one of the people involved in the film uh, was uh, a guy called David Hershey, who became a colleague of mine. Um, and he wrote uh, a regular column for ESPN. Um, and yeah, he, <laughs> he, he was one of those people that um, when you work for a company like ESPN, uh, occasionally the bosses like you to have, um, someone who may or may not be uh, friendly with the senior bosses at the place. Now, so David arrived uh, writing a column, which was edited in the US. I had very little to do with it. It was it was good stuff. He was a good writer. Uh, but at the time, I was the editor of the site, and they said to me, it'd be good if you had a chat with David. And uh, so we shot the shit, had quite a good bit of banter. He was an Arsenal fan. I was a Man United fan. Uh, but he... Uh, and I, I, he did one of the greatest name drops that I've ever had come across in my, in, in my time, which was that he said that he used to go uh, to Arsenal with Lord Bragg, as in Melvin Bragg. Oh, wow. Uh, and he didn't really laugh too much when I did my Melvin Bragg impression. <laughs> but um, Spitting image-based one, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, <laughs> uh, a slightly adenoidal nasal thing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he, he was the reporter that um, I think broke the story that um, Pele was joining New York Cosmos. Amazing. I mean, Gareth, uh, uh, back to you. Yeah. So your your uh, uh, so Shep, the the goalkeeper, is is actually one of the the best characters in the best talking heads in the documentary because he's approached it from perspective. You know, he he came in early. He's he was a a native New Yorker, and yeah, he's a, essentially a semi-amateur goalkeeper. Um, and you know, then the so the New York Cosmos is is bought by um, uh, Stephen Ross, who was basically the, the the Warner Empire, and you know, built these record labels and uh, you know, and cable and 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 film, and yeah. um, and it comes from his point of view where you know he's just playing for a yeah a pretty scrub. Uh, football team and then you know three years later Pele turns up and 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 it's you know and it, he's he's great because he's very you know he's very grounded he, he does the whole kind of yeah he's literally so you know we're in a bar and you know Beckenbauer walks in and, and so forth and you know he, he's a great character I mean the documentary is fantastic it kind of really you know shows how quite how glitzy and and, and crazy that like it was a real shooting star two-year period where you know they were selling out Giant Stadium, yeah, which is yeah the big sports stadium in in, in New York, uh, uh, which is eighty thousand people, um, and you know two years previous they were getting twenty thousand people, uh, that, and that was with Pele. That's insane. 
Yeah, I, 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 I think, um, yeah, this story, I mean, uh, it was a bit, about the time that I got into football, which would be mid-80s, you know, I would read World Soccer and it would talk about the fading NASL. And I think this is probably about the time that the original Cosmos fell apart. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think what Gareth alluded to earlier is that it's just that 1970s New York seems like the centre of the universe, doesn't it? Yeah. All that's what it felt like. And it's all that sort of, uh, sort of you know, jazzy, jazzy music you get in a lift, diners, you know, all that sort of new... It, 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 it's funny because New York is such a, a, a big city, such a, a metropolis, yet it is absolutely sports mad. It really is everywhere you go. And um, the fact that, you know, uh, this soccer team took off there. And I think the guy says that if we wanted the North American Soccer League to take off, we needed a New York team because New York then, as now, was the cultural centre. And uh, they went for it. Um, and in the same way that a few clubs have attempted to do this in Europe, they shot for the stars and uh, eventually ran out of money. Did Does the doc have an angle then beyond that, apart from just showing, shining the light on it, Gareth? Has it got like a, is it negative? Is it kind of because... It's, it, it's a little glossy in places. So um, the, the central carriage almost that we haven't spoken about is... Uh, they brought in a centre forward from Lazio called Giorgio uh, Cinaglia, um, who was pretty much in his prime when he went to the Cosmos and was you know was head and shoulders above most of the players, was banging them in, and um, so he had uh, an American first wife, and he spoke English with a Welsh accent, very strangely. <laughs> And he took to you know New York like a, a a duck to water, and he basically embedded himself in the team. He had the ear of the owner uh, Stephen Ross. Uh, towards the end, he essentially becomes the manager, and the sort of uh, and then starts you know putting people in place. And so he has this this gopher, this guy um, called uh, I think it's Pepe, uh, who's a, another Italian New Yorker. Um, and yeah, he's essentially a gopher. Uh, but he then gets installed as the uh, like executive vice president of the club. And when the club is wound up, this guy ends up holding the rights to the club's name. Wow. Uh, so and he he's basically you know ridden that ever since. And you know they've tried to relaunch the the, the, the Cosmos a, a few times, and it's never quite worked out. Um, and they have they have a hand in the story, obviously, as the rights holders. I assume maybe there's you know some footage, and so it, it's a little glossy. It, so it came out in 2006 when you know the, the U.S. national team was probably in its pomp. Yeah, um, you know around so sort of, you know between '94 and 2006, they qualified for every World Cup, and you know were doing reasonably well. And I, I think it was yeah, you know, it was also timed around you know. The, the MLS restarted um, really around the turn of the century and it was kind of building up quite nicely. So, you know, I, I think they it was an attempt to sort of reposition uh, the Cosmos as like the real founders of modern yeah. American uh, soccer. Um, and it, it's, it, it's, not, it's not so glossy that, you know, most of it's, it's very true and 
Oh, it feels very true. There's lots of uh, all, all the negative stuff and 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 the good stuff is in there. But yeah, it's definitely uh, very much the case of trying to say, you know, look at the history of this club. Look, look what it did. Um, that was actually when it finished. That was kind of my 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 biggest, probably my biggest issue is that it, it probably overstates how important the Cosmos is. You know, I think if you really want to argue what has made. Uh, football successful in America it's it's the women's national team because uh, yeah. they are so good and so dominant and I, I think you know essentially the the Cosmos story is a brilliant story but it is the story of a you know a club whose owner spent a lot of money getting in a lot a lots of uh, ritzy players that kind of you know pushed it over a few years and then and then you know everyone moved on but it's yeah it's, it's a fantastic piece and it, it's it's really enjoyable, and again, you know, the whole context of New York in the late seventies is is great. It's uh, weirdly, it's not currently available on any UK streaming uh, services. You can find a very serviceable copy uh, on YouTube. Oh, cool! Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, that Gareth and Martin, Chinaglia. Uh, uh, my memory of it is that Pele was in the same team, and he would argue that he was arguing that he was the biggest star, wasn't yeah. he? That was that was the sort of vibe that you got from him. You mentioned that he had a Welsh accent. He actually went to school in Wales, didn't he? He moved there as a young kid. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, he played for, um, he played for well, they were known as Swansea Town then before they became Swansea wow. City. Oh. Uh, played in the, I think it would have been the Cup Winners' Cup uh, because Swansea won the yeah. Welsh Cup and then yeah. was... Um, discovered by Italian clubs and moved over there and became a big star in Italy. So he was an inverted John Charles? Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, That's how he'd like to be known. Yes, I'm sure. And, and just it, the, the documentary is worth it just for him. He he happily plays the kind of uh, the villain of the piece, which he does seem to be as a brilliant kind of, you know, 60 second barrage of like seven or eight talking heads all basically say he was an awful person. You know, it helps that in the documentary, he basically looks like Tony Soprano in terms of dress and presentation. And um, yeah, he, he, he he's a fantastic character. Yeah. And, and, and there were allegations that he, I mean, he's dead. So this is okay to say this uh, allegations that he was involved in certain nefarious practices when he, trying to take over clubs in Italy. Uh, a very interesting character. Uh, someone should... I should probably try and write a, a book about him. Um, he's, he's no longer with us. Um, yeah, what an interesting career he had. Well, if, if you want to cut... If you want us to cut that bit out, John, just in case anyone steals, the, steals a march on you for writing that book, then just let us know. But that... Uh, no, I'm fundamentally lazy. That won't work. <laughs> I well for uh, cr- for chronological reasons, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow on what what I watched, which is just coincidentally was, um, I believe in miracles, the uh, the story of uh, Brian Clough's not enforced uh, in it would have been what this is at the end of the '80s. So again, probably just kind of overlapping slightly. Um, yeah. A very different sort got, of football. Got, got, meanwhile, over the Atlantic, exactly. Well, this is it. This is with this strange comparison because, I mean, in in a way, Clough was he was a, he had become a superstar here in a kind of you know in, in a infamous sort of celebrity way, you know, fe- featuring on talk shows and various things. I, I'll I'll clarify. So this this came out in October 2015, so it might be fresh in some people's memories. Um, and 
the opening scene is that famous. It's like that famous um, uh, talk show where he's on, or it's not a talk show; it might even be a sports one where he's on with Don Revy, and it's just like it's it's painful, but it's also like just genius because it's you know when he's when he's declaring you know after he'd been sat by Leeds, you know that he wanted to do it better, and it, and it's a little bit sad in that respect because you never really see Clough on the on the other side. He doesn't back down, you know, and he obviously gives more uh, than he's got and there was just that kind of indecision about where he might go next because they, they, they in the interview they actually say something like well you're a poison chalice like well, who would take you now which I just found quite funny for them being that frank in these interviews I don't know if either of you well I suppose you've have you have either of you seen it yes I have yeah yeah um and uh, uh, Danny Taylor uh used to be a colleague in the Guardian now at the Athletic he wrote a book around this and of course he's a Nottingham Forest fan and it's it's a uh, it's it's a fairly uh, passionate reproduction of that golden era and I, I suppose the title I Believe in Miracles which is a songs by the Jackson sisters it's a very sort of it's like a very American sort of disco-y song which actually seems more suited to New York than Nottingham yes. But so yeah, you've got that contrast, haven't you? You know, you've got you've got New York in the late seventies, you've got Nottingham in the late seventies, which had none of the glitz and glamour. Yeah, a club, uh, a very small club. Uh, well, not a small club, but a provincial club. Let's call them that. Are taken to two European Cups by that combination of Brian Clough and Peter Taylor. Um, you can't forget Peter Taylor. I mean, we mentioned him last week in the Damned United and Clough. Um, it was the end of his life. Would admit or admitted uh, after they fell out for quite a long time that he was never quite the same without without Peter Taylor on, alongside him. And that you've got the players talking about how how it was to work with Brian Clough and you know, some great images of late seventies Britain, which doesn't look that great a place to live, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> um, and, and, but I mean, Brian Clough is the star, obviously, and yeah. a magnetic presence. And as I said, from from the mid '80s, he was a guy that dominated the screen. Whenever Forrest were on or on Satan Greaves, he just had that. You know, I suppose actually, when I was a, a young kid, I was sort of almost afraid of him because he was so yeah. forthright. But um, yeah, I mean. It, it, it's funny that there isn't really a stone unturned of the Ryan Clough story because he's such an interesting character and it's it's pushed in so many directions from his days at Derby and Leeds and then even there's a book about him being at Brighton where he was very briefly. Yes, um, but this is a, this is a this is a, a great documentary. Yeah, I uh, just well, I'll take you back to that point you make because I I've got a question on it. That um, well, first of all. The director Johnny Owen, who's a, a a great guy, and like he's done, you know, he's done some really interesting things in the, in the run up. But this was like such a because he did a great documentary about the Wales national team as well. But he, um, obviously, I would imagine his uh, musical taste in the soundtrack, the funk and soul, and the kind of northern soul yeah. stuff that comes out of it. And um, but Danny Taylor, so this book was the the book was to accompany the film, but wasn't. I mean, is it just a book around the film around that time? Well, I think it's it, uh, Danny previously wrote a book um, about you know I think it's of the best ever Forest team yeah and uh, it's an, an extension of that it's a 
interviews. I think Danny's book only really goes up to them, just just like the documentary actually, only really goes up to them winning the first European yes. Cup. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's the tale of those players. And Danny, who's one of the best in the business, obviously knows those players. Is a Nottinghamshire lad, and you know gets some great interviews. Yeah, it, again, the book is is well worth a read. That's good. Well, that's good to know. I, I'd certainly follow up with it because um, I just going through it and just kind of getting a feel for the the players they had because it is it is a story of team spirit. It is very much you know the the triumph of a, a side that's great in the sum of their parts. And you hear um, just you see them come up and that incredible feat of them getting promoted. Then you know they didn't win the league, but they got promoted. I think Wolves won the Division Two, and then they got up through the promoted. Um, just on points, and then obviously the impact that they had in the in the in the top division, and uh, uh, straight off the bat was just brilliant. I just love and see them shocking teams, and they didn't do it in that way that kind of physically overpowers teams. You know, it was like the it it just the, their kind of style, their team spirit, and their just inability to give up, and also a lot of players that just felt you got the vibe that they were underdogs. You know, that, I, I really like that about it. Gareth, have you have you seen the Docker? Well, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that period. I I haven't, to be honest. It was uh, I my Nottingham Forest. Notes, I had a strange aversion to them growing up, and I think a lot of it was was Brian Clough. So essentially, the first time I was ever really aware of him was he was in the papers for you know for cuffing those fans who ran onto the pitch. Um, and I remember, you know, there was a big furor and there was a public apology. I, I think it was on, was it on national telly? It was... Oh, it was been, yeah. yeah. And, and that was kind of the first time. And I think, like you said, I found myself quite scared of him. Um, and it, it didn't help that, you know, essentially my first kind of, uh, first big, uh, you know, cup final as a Spurs fan that I remember was the 1991. So by then it was... Uh, you know, they were the mortal enemies when you're when you're 11 years old. The team that your team is playing in the cup final is is the the, the biggest worst enemy you can imagine. The, yeah, absolutely. Well, this, the, the things I pull out, I would say that just kind of jarred with me. Never too kind of proud to admit my lack of knowledge on these things prior to it. But what a player! Like people like Martin O'Neill, you know, a mm. uh, player that where it's kind of ever presence for him, and then ones that kind of missed out the ones like you know I never thought like Gemmo Archie Gemmo missed out that first champion and he was, he was going to the well, European Cup would call it um, was supposed to play and was told he was going to play and then missed out on the day and didn't find out and then never played for Forrest again oh, and wow. then was brought back as a coach and I'm, I always remember Paul, Paul McGregor I know so many funny stories from him from Forrest at the time and he was just like I was like what was it what's it like playing with Archie Gemmo and he was like the man, he goes, he can nutmeg you with your legs to tied together. He's just like, the guy used to play five-a-sides with him was hilarious. And then there's like a there's a scene in it where Clough's going on about, I think Frank Clark was the one they pulled out. He'd say, oh, I don't want to see till Thursday. That's it. you know. And you would have to go and just rest up. And if you didn't rest up, he'd give you a bollocking because um, Clough was like really important on rest, but also he'd make training so fun that it was always like people would come in with a spring in their step and train really hard Thursday, Friday, and be ready for the game. Um, and I remember Gregor saying that, but I think that was in the era when they needed to train, you know, and the team were at the bottom and they were looking like they'd have a good week and Clough would come in because he was just, you know, drinking a lot of the time and that was really sad to watch. But none of them had that because he had such fear factor. None of them would ever say anything against him. No. 
Um, there's a few other players. Who else is that? Like even just like players like Tony Woodcock. Like played. I didn't realize he what an England career the guy had. I suppose that's because I'm not really an England fan. Played 40 games for England. You know, 42 games, something like that. Yeah, yeah. 82 and 86 World Cups, was he? I don't think he, he wasn't in the squad in 86, but yeah, I mean, he I mean, he, he, he made his career in, in Germany after after leaving Forest, but he was a very good player. Um, Nottinghamshire lad. And, and Gary Bertels is another. Mm, yes. He got him from Long Eaton United. <laughs> and, you know, within not long, he was the, the, the star man in... Uh, you know, putting Liverpool to the sword, um, and a player actually who uh, later on had a high-profile move to Manchester United. I think the fee was 1.25 million. When 1.25 million was an awful lot of money, and uh, barely scored a goal, um, and uh, that then went back to Forest. And mm. that's that's the thing that I think you're pushing towards is the fact that Clough would have ugly duckling players. I mean, probably the best player they had would be John Robertson. Yes, um, absolutely. Who, you know, uh, a player of not great pace uh, and I think reasonably uh, one-footed and, you know, wouldn't be tackling back, but an absolute wand of, 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 of yeah. the foot and just a, a brilliant footballer and... Um, Funny enough, Martin O'Neill, playing on the other side, had to do a much more of a, you know, a much had to work much harder, and yet it, it was pretty much, you know, give the ball to this guy and he'll win the game for you. Um, it, it, the thing is with Clough that the, the the philosophy was simple. Um, it was a lot of it was psychological, um, and ultimately, you're watching him at his apex. Then I think there's a there's a story that. Um, after they won the, the second um, European Cup, they beat uh, Kevin Keegan's Hamburg. He pretty much turned to Peter Taylor and said, you know, that's the end of it. And sadly, <laughs> that, that was the case. Cause, you know, he was managed for another 13 years. They would they won trophies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I think he recognised that those were the heights. And I suppose Clough's is, is a sad story, the way that it, it ended up. Yeah. No, absolutely. You make a great point there. That is uh, John Robertson, a perfect example of someone that you just can't imagine. Like if he'd have got a move to Liverpool or Man United, he would just probably not have been half the player. And and there is, you know, there's because in our mind we think of him as such a left-footed player. He did have a decent right, and they they kind of yeah. allude to it in the. Um, but you're right. He's so he just looked one-sided because he's always go down the outside. And if he did chop inside, he, he had a good shot on him. But well, a, I think he he scored the winner in the European Cup with the right yeah. hand side. Yeah, I mean he, he just and, and and perhaps one of those players that you wouldn't see now um, because of his mm. I suppose lack of physical capability, um, but just a genius footballer. And I suppose it, yeah. you watch that and you, you think it's sad that we can't really have players like that anymore because no, it was absolutely. so entertaining to watch. Absolutely. I, I The only comparison I've ever seen when, when I was really young, I, I got loaned over to Shelburne. I played in the island and there was just this little delinquent that played for us and he didn't turn up for training half the time, didn't turn up for most of the matches. And um, the, the, the manager can get into that. As someone who's very... They ended up. We ended up having a manager who you would almost call Martin uh, Martin O'Neill Light. He was Pat Fenland. Do you remember Pat Fenland? Who, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a great guy, but again, just kind of like a. a um, and he played in the same position as this kid. And this kid was well. It was Wes Houlihan, right? 
Right, yeah. He was un... But you can't get the ball Couldn't get him. Didn't have pace in terms of an accelerator, but would just go past you like you weren't there, would read things and just do things with the ball. You were just like, the game's so easy to him. And you could see, obviously, when he came over and, and knuckled down, his, his career just blossomed. And he's one of those players that I sometimes think... You know, could have even been been even more impactful if, if he'd have gone. But it, you know, Norwich was a good fit from at the time, and just a shame they yo-yoed so much. But anyway, listen, we're, we're, I, I don't want to go on with this one too fast. We've still got a bit to do, so let's take a break now and uh, come back after. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct. Something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen. Check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. All right, so, uh, John, uh, it's your turn. Uh, what have you been watching or what would you like to talk us through in terms of footy docs? Well, uh, you know, when you we mentioned football documentaries, I, I couldn't really look past this one and it's uh, Graham Taylor, The Impossible Job uh, now, oddly this was renamed at a certain point as Do I Not Like That and I think that was because it was so successful as a documentary that he actually released it as a VHS cassette we are going back that long ago so this came out in 1994 um, a few months after England had uh, failed to qualify for the uh, well, USA 94. Um, and I mean, listen, uh, every, I mean, I, I spent one night uh, on one of, one of my trips to the New York City. I, I went and had a few drinks with a friend of mine, uh, Damien Lanigan, uh, who, who was a, lived over there for 20 years. And um, we just spent the night quoting back parts of that documentary. <laughs> it's just, it's almost like a spinal tap of, um, of football documentaries. Oh, it's true. Yeah. It's got, it's just got so many moments, um, and the star of the show is Graham Taylor himself. And it's, it's sad that uh, he ends up it, it, looking back on it it, it. it was such a sensation to be shown, um, and I remember hearing uh, when Graham Taylor died uh, three years ago or so. Um, the, the the guy that made the documentary was saying how accommodating he was because. Graham Taylor's father had actually was a journalist and um, Graham Taylor always had a good relationship with reporters and tried to maintain that. And um, you, the, the closing scene in it is the reporters uh, phoning through their copy, which shows you how old it was. This is an age before the internet, really. Um, and then phoning through their copy and they're basically sticking the knife into to Graham Taylor um, and there's a bit where he's talking to a, I think he's going on like Pebble Mill at one or something. And he's talking to the, he's talking to the fellow guests. They're in the makeup chairs, and he turns to this other guy, and 
the bloke says to him, well, you know, the one job I wouldn't want would be yours or Princess Di. And Graham Taylor says, well, do you know what? She writes to me now and again and says, uh, thanks for taking the pressure off me. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, it, 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 it's, I, I think, I mean, Graham Taylor, um, uh, he's one of those people that actually won the public back, didn't he, after that? Because he became a successful manager again with Watford, was uh, became a, a, a very popular broadcaster he was in, in England and over in Ireland as well, actually, later in his career. And yeah. he just, he, you just feel sorry for the guy because he's trying his hardest. He is... Uh, uh, something of a, you know, something of a, uh, one of that. Again, we've talked about this before in a podcast. That the classic British comedy character of, you know, <laughs> yes. just get, just getting a bit above himself. There's there's a bit where they're sat in a shelter. They're, they're training ahead of the Poland game, and it's raining, so they're all underneath this sort of tarpaulin shelter, and he's delivering this speech, and the rest of the the players are just sat there thinking, what is he talking about? It's it's like a it's some sort of long ramble about destiny, and there's a, there's a, there's, a, there's a team talk that he gives ahead of the the Dutch game. Again, is equally nonsensical. <laughs> you, can, you can just sense the the adrenaline really got to him. It meant so much. It's what he wanted to do. It's what he wanted to achieve. And he does actually say that it's the first time in his career where he hadn't actually achieved his aim because he had been a hugely successful manager with Lincoln. He'd taken Watford from nowhere. He'd gone very close, just ahead of getting the England job, to winning the title with Aston Villa. Um, the style of football was not fantastic. Uh, it was fairly basic. It was all based around set pieces and uh, position of maximum whatever it is, you know. <laughs> yeah, BMO. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's the one, yeah. Based on maximum opportunity. And that's the one. That's the one you've worked in this more than I have. Uh, no, and, I was just going to say that's uh, you've literally. I've just tied that in with because I've just seen he managed Lincoln from the seventy two seventy seven when Keith Alexander was manager. He go Pomo group Pomo get to the Pomo exactly. Like, what, what's he banging on about? And it was just like get to the back stick and we'll launch. We'll launch it. We'll just launch it exactly. <laughs> and if you've got Luther Brissett playing for Watford, you've got half a chance. Well, quite, yeah. Or, you know, John Barnes, Nigel Callaghan, stuff like that. And I, I think actually, I mean, I actually watched it and thought he's actually working with quite a few decent players. It's uh, <laughs> unfortunate that Paul Gascoigne is is in the sort of fat Elvis years, really. Uh, <laughs> you know, Gazet is overweight in this, um, which is it's a shame. Uh, and he's obviously having big problems in Italy, uh, Alan Shearer gets injured when he was just about coming into his prime. Uh, but you've got players like Les Ferdinand, Ian Wright, Teddy Sheringham. Uh, David Platt was a really good player at the time. But you've got quite a few players that are completely losing form, like Des Walker, who'd been so fantastic, yeah. just falls apart. Yeah. And he, he, he's unlucky. He was an unlucky manager. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it, but it's, it's the comedy classics with Phil Neal. I think the thing... Phil Neal has never really recovered from that documentary. <laughs> no, no, he has not. You know. The ultimate yes man. Yeah, I mean, I think he actually did get a job after that with, with Coventry, but maybe not from, you know, briefly anyway. But it, it, it was just, he, yeah. It, and, 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 and Laurie McMenemy. Laurie McMenemy being a, a great manager. You know, Laurie McMenemy in the late 70s would have been compared to Clough as, you yeah. know, someone that had 
taken a small club and made them into one of the big teams. But by this point, he just seems to have this role of being some sort of cheerleader before the games is just like, how are the lads? And all this. And it's just, it, 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 it's farcical. Because, I mean, as I said, like the, 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 the maker of the documentary said at the start, you know, uh, they, they, he, he, there's, a, there's a shot where it's one of the games, I think it, it might have been away in Poland, where, where Taylor allows the, the, the um, camera to be placed on his, on his jacket. So he's got that extreme close-up that you get on a really bad iPhone sort of FaceTime conversation. And it just looks weird. It looks really sort of grotesque when he's shouting at the players. But he seems to have no shame about this, and they said that he also got them in. He got them to he got the, 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 them to sit on the bench alongside him. He, he really did do, you know. He opened the doors for them, and they had a great deal of respect for him. But there's no way they could paint this as anything but a disaster. Spot on, but Gareth, you uh, did you watch this back in the day, or have you rewatched it since? Uh, so I watched it again, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, I remember when it first came out. Firstly, yeah, it was incredible viewing, but I think that period was so. I I, I was very hurt by that, you know, entire kind of three four year uh, period. You know, I, I was a very firm. So my, you know, I had again. I was about eleven in World Cup ninety, and you know what, you know what a curse to basically begin your love of English England football with Italia ninety. Yeah, yeah, you think it's always going to be that good, that passionate, that dramatic, and then you go through this, you know, awful fallow period until Euro '96. You know, and you know, he, the the infamous substitution of uh, uh, Gary Lineker for Alan Smith in the '92. Oh, wow. I mean, that sets. I think that set the tone for the rest of his, uh, you know, managerial period with England. I, I think he almost. Probably exaggerate to say he lost the country, but I think there was a lot of suspicion that is this guy making the right decisions? Um, and from there, it was so. I remember when it first came out, it was almost too raw. I still find the footage in uh, Rotterdam quite harrowing, yeah. Um, in terms of both the result and the sort of the fecklessness of, of, of Taylor and you know, the infamous you know, linesman, you know, thank the referee, he's lost me my job. Um, you know, there's something very human about it. it it's absolutely brilliant. I, uh, but upon watching again, I again, like you said, uh, Taylor rehabilitated his image, and rightfully so, it seems. Um, and yeah, viewing again more recently, you can definitely, you know, watch it with a different angle, and it is absolutely brilliant. You know, I the thing that kind of strikes me is that it's almost at the real cusp where football changed it's very early into the premier league years english football was still very much english yes, football yes. with a capital e uh there is a sort of slightly gray hue to the whole documentary it's not vibrant and colorful which i think is what you might sort of associate you know modern football with and um it does feel like you know the last vestiges of of the old empire of uh the football and i think that goes back to what John was saying with maybe some of the, the characters involved, people who were a little long in the tooth, maybe a little bit out of their depth. And, you know, there is, you know, that group of English footballers who, 
they were, you know, were talented, but I think they will forever be, you know, kind of tainted by this whole period. You know, Les Ferdinand was a, a brilliant striker, and but this is the period I will associate him with, you know, kind of playing in these teams. You know, San Marino obviously is is another farce. Um, you know, even Stuart Pearce, the unflappable Stuart Pearce, you know, gets caught up in this whole maelstrom and gives away, you know, a, a record-setting goal to to a team who, you know, so England had to, were going in, I think England had to win 8-0. Um, and they, they had to win by seven clear goals, Gary. Yes, and, uh, and Holland had to not beat uh, Norway. Poland, okay. it was Poland. Yeah. Oh, Poland, yes. and uh, and you're like, but the the, the conversation was still well, uh, you know, I think Holland got ten against San Marino and campaign, so we should get that at least, it'd be fine. Yeah. And then it was like, you know, the ultimate kind of crashing down to earth. Well, within nine seconds, you're like, oh, so this is where we are, is it? Um, but it, it, it it's a brilliant, brilliant documentary. Um, the editing's fantastic. There's a lot of editing for comic effect that juxtaposition between taylor saying what's going to happen on the night you know smash cuts exactly the opposite thing happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which game it was but and, and i think my favorite piece it's it's hard to say the favorite piece but i i loved that conversation with um the was it the daily mail journalist rob rob shepherd uh, it's, it's Ro- rob shepherd i think he actually worked for the the newspaper Today, which is a you know a, ta- a now defunct tabloid, um, you know as as a a guy who uh, was a reporter on the beat for a few years, when I watched this documentary back, probably about the time that Graham Taylor died, um, uh, it, it, it held certain portents for me because of those people uh, that are on that England press pack, uh, and this would be 1993, um, so. But none of those people were around by the time I got onto the circuit, really, which shows you, um, apart from actually Rob Shepard, who was relatively young but um, isn't really on the circuit these days, it shows you that as, as, as short as football careers are, uh, careers for Fleet Street hacks are not that long either. And, um, yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it was slightly, slightly concerning uh, for me. Um but one of the things about it, actually, and Graham Taylor mentions this quite a lot, is the power of the media. The power of the media held over people's view of the England team. I don't think that is as strong now because um, people yeah. don't buy newspapers. I mean, obviously, there's Twitter, there's social media, um, and there's the fact that everyone sees all the games. and has more voices. Yes, exactly. But these these people who, I mean, one of the people in there is Harry Harris, a guy that I, I worked with for a few years and know well. He's one of the people that's sharpening the knife to, put, you know, to to stick into to Graham Taylor at the end. And, and those people had held great power because people would read the newspaper and um, they, they would. I mean, Graham Taylor actually admits during the documentary, you know, they 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 have to get a story a day. In those days, tabloid mm. newspapers were very competitive. It was about getting a story and getting a story which exposed something in the England camp or slagging the manager and obviously converted him into a root vegetable. Um, right. Turn it. That was, that was how things were. I don't think it's quite as cutthroat these days, but the power of the media, um, on the back pages at least, is no way as strong as it used to be. 
Get, uh, get, sorry, Gareth, just going. You make a great point about the change in football in England and the way it was changing, and perhaps that combined with the optics that he was under Graham Taylor. It seems, oh, it seems crazy because I mean, like even around that time when in Europe, you know, the English teams were just coming back into Europe, really. So they were just kind of learning how to play at that level. And the few players that were abroad perhaps weren't having as good a time as you know you would hope from your stars, particularly in the back of Italian ninety. And then, but by 96, the team had almost, you know, very universally changed as an England fan and a player. You, you, there was a hope and a, there was a different mentality. So it just, he, you know, he was fated to fall in that time. And then you look at things like, what was that, Mike Bassett? You look at, it, that's the archetypal <laughs> comedic version of this. I mean, because you know, Sven Goran Eriksson got it soon after, didn't he? And every England manager since, in a way, was mocked and humiliated with, you know, from Keegan to Glenn Hoddle. I mean, these are the greats of the game in the country. Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, you know, England doesn't necessarily pick their pick their managers well, but there also does appear to be this kind of propensity to to step in it from, you know, Hoddle's ill-advised uh, comments about rebirth and, you know, Keegan's right. infamous departure... You know, having a breakdown in a closet in Wembley. I mean, it, it just goes on. But it, it, it's not. It's not just England. I, I was thinking uh, the other day. Someone mentioned Bertie Votes, um, the Germany manager, and you know, he essentially takes on the role for them as their Graham Taylor. He was the point where you know the country went, okay, look, we need to sort this out. It's all gone wrong. Um, but uh, so the question. Sorry, I, I digress. The question I had for John is. Going back to that that media thing, the relationship between managers and and journalists, you know, I was always so struck when he was like, Rob, Rob, and it's like, the England manager knows this guy's name, and he's basically having a conversation saying, cheer up. And so, you know, I was wondering if you've had experience of that where you have had, like, you know, very you know, cordial or very kind of, you know, fairly personable relations with managers and how that kind of changes how how you cover a team. No, I mean, I, I, I was the shy man in the press conferences and usually do stuff like to volunteer to type up the quotes and stuff like that. I, I There are other people who... Um, there are other people... There, there are certain journalists that like to joust with the manager, that like them to know who they are. Um, and there are certain, <laughs> there's certain of those who... Uh, and that certain managers will deliberately not try and know out their names just because they're just seen as you know something to swat away um and and, and certainly those journalists would be very disappointed if they realized how little this the, the, the managers knew about them but th- there are you know on, on that regular beat on that england beat and uh, i suppose the england manager that i covered the most games of would have been roy hodgson um and uh, yeah, I mean, Roy was pretty cordial, really, um, and relationship with the, with. I mean, a lot of the time it would be a pretty cordial press conference with a couple of testy moments with some of the more incisive questions. But a lot of the time that would happen, and then afterwards the knives would come out in the copy after they'd lost the game. Um, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this about my fellow reporters, but I always got the impression that one of the reasons a lot of them were annoyed that uh, England were going out of a tournament is that, you know, that their nights out were coming to a close and they'd have to go home. And 
Uh, it, I think that's fair to say, John. Yes, yeah, and um, it, it, it was. I mean, you know, a famous one uh, was uh, the England played Italy in the 2014 World Cup. We're in Manaus, and we all had to take malaria tablets. Um, and one of the the, the more famous hacks said, as we're waiting for Roy to come in, well, England could be out of the tournament by the you know by the time. Uh, we'll still be taking malaria tablets by that time. We won't have finished our course on them. So, you know, which is a great line, it has to be said. And I think a few papers nicked that one. Um, but, yeah, it, it's there are adversarial relationships in the press. I think, going back to that era of Graham Taylor, um, when you see them all with the shorthand notebooks and there's a little bit where he says, you know, I'll spend 10 minutes with you, that's away from the cameras. And I think those discussions were probably a bit more testing, a bit more in your face. Now, most of the time, there's a camera on you uh, when when the manager's there, so there's less of a... Uh, people have to put on a slightly different face. I mean, yeah, I've been through briefings with managers, and a lot of the time, it, it, it's friendly enough. Um, yeah, it, 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 and of course, you can't... It's very difficult for managers to go, for, for press people to go in to, to a manager and pit and ask like the, the telling question that's going to cause a ruckus because they, they're not going to, it's not as if they won't, they'll ban you or anything like that, but your life isn't going to be made easy. It's a, yeah. it, there's a lot of give and take in it. Well, listen, I, I get the feeling we could probably talk about this and take it in another direction uh, all, all evening, but uh, I would, I'm, I'm, even though I can't see his face, my our producer Leon is probably staring at me uh, via the phone. Um, to wrap things up so uh well let's well, let's look at some of those maybe there's a couple of topics that we can explore next week so uh, uh let's take that offline and uh and gents listen um it's been good having you on thanks john uh, yeah cheers cheers thanks gareth thanks very much man take care and we'll speak to you next week i was the whistleblowers this is a playback media production to listen to all our football podcasts visit playbackmedia.co.uk Sports Social Podcast Network.